Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Galatians 5, chapter 22 through 24, and 1 John 4, chapter 7 through 12 and 19. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Dear friends, let us not love one another, for love comes from God. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if I were to ask you to define love, the word love, how would you do it? I think for the most part, uh, we'd all tend to define it um, in the same way that the dictionary defines it, uh, specifically a strong affection or attraction. Uh, And since we define the word that way, we do use that word in a variety of different contexts, don't we? So I will say things like, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my church, Um, but I also love 45-degree fall days. I love coffee. I love spending an entire day reading. I love good buffalo wings, and I love cooking shows with Guy Fieri. I think for the most part, my wife is uh, really, that's one of those things that my wife is just embarrassed that I love, but I love Guy Fieri. Of course, my use of the word love is different in each of those contexts, right? We know that to be true. But to varying degrees, they still kind of fit that assumed definition of a strong affection or attraction. But what then should we do when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says that you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, If Jesus uses the word concerning how we treat our enemies, then it's probably fair to say that our standard definition of love is flawed. I mean, what kind of conception of love includes our enemies? Well, today we continue our series called The Fruit. It's been a very slow look at Galatians 5. We'll be looking at it all summer. And the goal for this summer series is to try to consider what it takes for us to grow in Christian character. Now, over the last few weeks, we took the time to consider the foundations of Christian character, and we considered that growth in the Christian life requires this rootedness in Jesus. Uh, In the week two, we talked about the necessity of freedom that comes for us to be able to love God and to love others. And then last week, we looked at how spiritual growth really comes out of a spiritual battle that is being waged against the world and the flesh. And this week, with those foundations in mind, we now turn to look at what Christian character actually is, 
specifically, growing in Christian character is to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And now for the rest of the series, we're going to take a very slow look at each element of the fruit listed in Galatians 5, so that we might have a greater sense of clarity on what God requires of us, what God is accomplishing in us. Now today we are going to look at the very first elements of the fruit, that ill-defined, overused, often under-experienced element of love. And to try to understand what the Bible is, uh, speaks of when it speaks of love, let's consider this. Let's consider the fruit in love, the meaning of love, and the power for love. Okay? So first, the fruit in love. So to begin, I want us to notice two dynamics associated with the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Let's take a look at the fruit as a whole for a second. First, though we could unpack uh, this for the remainder of the day, let me first mention that we are discussing the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. Okay? So in uh, verse 22, it says, but the fruit, okay, that's singular in the Greek, of the Spirit is also singular. Right? The reason why I note this is because this list that's given is not a separate list of distinct fruits that some might have and others might not have. This is one of the major distinctions between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. See, the gifts of the Spirit are distributed by the Holy Spirit to different people for the good of the whole body. The Spirit might give some the gift of teaching or others evangelism or others the gift of service or he might call some to particular roles like pastor or elder or deacon. These are all distinct callings, distinct giftings. And no one except Jesus possesses all of these gifts and callings. Instead, as Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ is a collection and a joining together of individuals who possess specific and unique gifts. And when the body of Christ comes together, it's then that we more fully reflect the fullness of these gifts and these callings. But this is completely different than the fruit of the Spirit. Because while not all Christians will hold every gift of the Spirit, each Christian should possess the totality of the fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian, if growing in Christian character, will see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in their lives. That's what true spirituality looks like. That's what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is at work. You know, one of the uh, most influential books uh, in my life was written by uh, a pastor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The book is called Joy Unspeakable. You can look it up on Amazon right now if you would like to. I highly recommend that book to everybody. But in the book, uh, Lloyd-Jones considers extensively what it means to be filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there's so much that could be said, but there's this one section when Lloyd-Jones is calling attention to what many assume to be, um, or what many assume is happening when the Spirit is at work. And for some Christians, they assume that the Holy Spirit has shown up, in his words, when something dramatic or spectacular takes place. But then he pushes back on that idea a little bit. Because he argues that though the Holy Spirit might do spectacular things at times, right? The kinds of things that you would see in the book of Acts. That is not the primary sign of the Spirit being at work. He says, let me read this to you. 
If you see something very dramatic and spectacular claiming to be the Holy Spirit, you are entitled to look in that person for the fruit of the Spirit. It is because at times certain sections of the church have failed to do this that they have made shipwrecks, as I have been indicating. In other words, what he's saying is there might be people claiming some miraculous things are taking place as a result of the Holy Spirit being at work. But if they do, we have every right to stop and say, okay, that's cool. But what about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Because that's the way the Spirit is normally working, regularly working in the life of the Christian. And to put a finer point on it, it's when we start to see these aspects, these, this fruit developing, that we know that the Spirit is truly at work and that we have truly surrendered to that work. I emphasize this point because some might say that the Spirit is at work only when they see the supernatural events taking place. But no, it's the fruit of the Spirit working in us regularly that is evidence that the Spirit is present and at work in us. I also emphasize this point because some might find it sufficient to say that, you know, I, I am good at doing some aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, but I'm not so good at other ones. And so they assume, well, you know, I'm not very patient or kind, but I am faithful and self-controlled. Other people just have the gift of being kinder than me. Or, you know, I lack self-control, but I am gentle and I am peaceful, but, I, you know, other people, maybe they're just more self-controlled than me. But no, that misses the point completely. The fruit is a total thing. When we see the fruit in its fullness being uh, birthed in us, growing in us, that's when we know that the Spirit's at work. And where there are deficiencies in one element of the fruit, more than likely, even in the areas that we think are strengths, more than likely we're not as strong as we think. For example, now if you think that you are self-controlled, but you're not very kind, I can almost assuredly show you that you're not actually that self-controlled because you're incapable of controlling how you pe- treat other people, and therefore, that's the reason why you're not kind. Or if we think that we are peaceful, but we lack self-control, I can almost assuredly show you your lack of self-control undermines the peace in your life and in the lives of those around you. All of these fruit elements of the fruit work together. The fruit of the Spirit is a packaged deal. And Christian growth is when we're reflecting all of them as a single fruit. Okay, now that said, that leads me back to where we began. The first aspect of that fruit. Because it's no coincidence that love is the first element that's listed. And throughout chapter 5, love has already come up uh, numerous times. And each time, love is a significant lens through which the Christian ought to see their relationship with God and their relationship with others. That really is in line with how love is treated elsewhere in the Bible as well. You know, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, which is, you know, known as the love chapter, the famous love chapter, Paul argues that if we speak in the tongues of angels, that if he has the gift of prophecy and he can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if he can move mountains, but if he doesn't have love, he has nothing. And then he ends the chapter by saying, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the centerpiece of what it means to be a Christian. 
If we think about the fruit of the Spirit as an apple, love, in a lot of ways, is the core of that fruit. It is the controlling element from which all other elements flow. It under, it, it's, it's the foundational element for how we then begin to see joy and peace and patience and kindness. All of these things flow more easily when we first understand love. And I have found this to be quite practical in my own life and as a pastor. Because whenever I, whenever I see myself or others not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit well, there is almost always a breakdown in their understanding and expression of biblical love. So what is biblical love? Right? That begs the question, well, how then should we understand love? If love is so central to the Christian character, to Christian character and the fruit of the Spirit, what is it? Let's look at that, the meaning of love. Uh, I began by, of course, stating that love is this kind of weird, fluid, non-specific, broad term that we use that really ends up incorporating so much that in the end, it really loses all of its meaning. Right? My love for my wife and my love for Guy Fieri can't possibly be the same thing. And so it's helpful to try to jettison our current conceptions of love and instead pay closer attention to how the Bible defines love. Now, of course, in English, we, uh, we're a little bit of a, at a disadvantage when understanding love because, as you know, we really only have one word for love. But you may know this, there are several Greek words for love that you find throughout, the, uh, throughout Greek literature and some within the biblical text. And as an example, let me give you a quick breakdown of what those might be. One Greek word, eros, is a word for love, but that word uh, is where we get the word erotic. Uh, an erotic love is a sexual kind of love. It's the kind of love that might be uh, used between a husband and a wife, for example. Uh, another word uh, for love in Greek is philio, which in Greek is, uh, has its roots, uh, the Greek word is root, the root word of Philadelphia. And that's more about brotherly kind of love. It's a friendship kind of love. But the word that's used most in the New Testament for love is the word agape. And agape gives us a remarkably robust picture of what love ought to be. Now, as you might know, the Bible was written in three different languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Each of these languages has their own different words for love, different nuances to each of them. But when the New Testament writers were trying to determine the best word to use when describing the love of God in Christ, they looked at the life of Jesus and they redefined their standard understandings of love. That is, that they looked at the life and the, the life and the teaching of Jesus and based their understanding on what he had done, what he had said. And as a result, agape love is the word that they use. And this matters because in ancient Greek literature, Agape is almost never used in general. It is incredibly, it's used incredibly sparsely, and it's used only in very specific circumstances. And yet, in the New Testament, agape is used over 320 times. It is the primary way the New Testament writers understood love. Now, with all that buildup, what does agape mean? Well, agape love, it's a sacrificial kind of love. It's a love that is rooted in action, even toward those who may be deemed unlovable. 
It is the kind of love that flows from the character and from the nature of God. 1 John 4 tells us that God is agape. It is a love that is not dependent on the quality or the attributes of the object of love, but rather from the quality and character of the one who loves. Romans 5 tells us that, but God proves his own agape for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 goes on to call us enemies of God, but that while we were enemies of God, God reconciled us with his agape love, a love that is not dependent on our own love for him. Rather, it's rooted in the quality of him, his nature. The quality of God's love is not dependent on our love for him as we were in rebellion against him, but rather flows from his character. This is the big distinction about agape love. Now, we're going to see this with uh, other elements of the fruit of the Spirit, but love is radically transcendent when we understand it as God being the starting point and not our own conceptions. I think the most practical way to understand agape love is not to see love as a feeling or a sense of attraction or affection the way that we normally do, but rather as actions that seek the good of others. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Love that is rooted in action that's seeking the good of others regardless of the good that we may receive from them. And so if you take love, if if that is love, do you see now how Jesus could say that we should love our enemies? Do you see how uh, Jesus, when he was pressed about what it means to love your neighbor, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's this this scene in Luke, uh, Luke 10 where Jesus is confronted by an expert of the law who wants to wiggle out of some implications of what it, mean to might, what it means to uh, love his neighbor. And in that, uh, in Luke 10, we see that this expert of the law comes and he says, it, um, uh, Luke says, that in order to justify himself, the expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, when it says that he went to justify himself, it means that he wanted to make sure that he was good with obeying the law. So Jesus says that we ought to love our neighbor, and so this person says, well, who exactly is my neighbor? He wants to ensure that he has followed the law. Now, while this is my own conjecture, I actually think this guy was probably thinking more along the lines of, like, the friendship kind of love. Meaning, I think the teacher of the law, in order to justify himself, was thinking, you know, my neighbor is my fellow Jewish brethren, And I have loved my fellow Jewish brethren well, so I must be fulfilling this law. And this was his way of justifying himself. But then Jesus tells the parable of a man, a Jewish man, who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And in the story, his own fellow Jewish brethren left him there to die. However, a Samaritan man came along. A man that the Jewish people would have thought very little of and maybe even uh, considered him to be an enemy. This Samaritan man is the one who stops to care for this fallen foe. And Jesus says, that's how you love a neighbor. You bandage the wounds and you pay for the care of those, even those you might deem as an enemy. That's the kind of love that the Bible speaks of with agape love. That's agape love. Do you see why 
such a word would be used so sparingly? Do you see why love is at the core of, what it's, uh, of the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see why the other elements of the, of the fruit of the Spirit are going to revolve around that kind of love? It's because that kind of love is not natural to us. If we are to be marked by this kind of love, if that kind of love is to grow inside of us, we will not be able to find it in our current conceptions of love. Rather, that love, that kind of love, must be accomplished in us. It must be done not in our own strength, but come from a strength elsewhere. That kind of love is the love that the Spirit of God is working in us. Which is why we also need to finally understand and see that there is this power that we are given for love. I've said this before, but 1 John 4 really ought to be the love chapter. Like that, in my opinion, is the love chapter. Uh, And that passage uh, really presents to us fully what agape love means, how it flows from the character and the nature of God, how it is, how it deeply informs the power needed for our own expressions of that love. And I gave you a little sampling in our reading today, but I want to look at verse seven. Let me just walk through what I, what I gave you quickly. Verse seven says, dear friends, let us not agape or let us agape one another for agape comes from God. And so agape comes from God after everything we've said that seems to make sense. And it seems to make sense that we are not bent toward this agape kind of love. But then it goes on. That everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, let me pause there for a second. That again seems to make sense. If God is agape, if God is love, then the only way to know agape fully is to know God. And then how do we know God? Verse 9 goes on to say, this is how God showed us his agape, his, uh, his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, because we were incapable of such love, because our natural bend is away from such love, God, as love, sends his son to show us what love is and to provide us a way that we can experience that kind of love. The cross of Jesus is the fullest expression of that kind of love, a love that led Jesus to give of himself, to lay down his life, not for those who have earned his favor favor, or for those that have first proved their love for him, but rather the cross was a demonstration of love, a love that we did not deserve, that we had not earned, but a love that was rooted in action for the good of those, of his people, those he called. And in verse 11, the end result, says, dear friends, since God so agaped us, we also ought to agape one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we agape, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. It's a powerful idea that when we experience the love of God in Christ, we see the extent to which God has revealed his love for us. 
And when we trust him, and as a result of our faith in this love, we are then able to love others similarly. We are able to love with an agape kind of love, which just brings us really back to Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. When we are trusting and when we see this love of God, and when the Holy Spirit begins to work in us, we are then given the ability and the power to love in this kind of way. This is the kind of love that God desires to grow in us as we see the love that he has extended to us. And let me get practical for this for a second. You know, when I look at myself, when I consider us as a congregation, when I, honestly, when I consider the church just more broadly, if there are breakdowns in Christian character, they are almost always breakdowns of love. Always. There's always something wrong with the way that we understand or the way that we express love when we begin to see the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit break down. A lack of patience is a lack of love, even though God in Christ is patient with us. You know, a lack of kindness is often rooted in a lack of love because we've forgotten God's loving kindness toward us even when we didn't deserve it. A lack of gentleness or a lack of self-control is often a lack of love. It's almost always rooted back to a breakdown of our understanding of love. And we all need this renewed sense of God's love for us if we are going to grow in Christian character. And I don't want to move past that fact too quickly. Because if we do, we will fail to embody fully God's love. And as a result, we certainly will not show that love in its fullest in the way that God intends us to. And we will have issues with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit beginning to develop and grow in us. Seeing the love of God, seeing that he first loved us, radically transforms our own understanding of love. And when we begin to trust in that kind of agape love, we do begin to see transformation happen in our lives that then extends to the lives of others. And so my prayer for all of us is that we more fully, first and foremost, see the love of God in Christ. And that that would begin to transform us radically, transform our conceptions of love for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That this is the greatest reflection and presentation of agape love. A love that is rooted in a desire to see our good. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that great love. And we also acknowledge the ways that we too often forget about that love. We forget about the ways that you are constantly leading us and calling us to reflect and embody that kind of love. And so, God, I ask that you would make us a people of love, people of agape love, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is others-oriented, a love that is rooted in action for the good of others. Lord, we trust that uh, that is a work of your spirit, and so we ask your spirit to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.